I'm AJ Bianco, host of Reflect Ed, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I've got Russell Heath on the show again. That's right, you remember him. He's the author of the mystery thriller Wren's Crossing. Go back and listen to episode 317 to hear more. Today we're talking about his sailing around the world, lessons learned, and looking at his new quest, which involves building his own boat and rowing around the waters of Newfoundland. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. In his teens, Russell Heath hitchhiked to Alaska and lived in a cabin on the banks of the Tanana River. In his 20s, he lived in Italy and then traveled overland across the Sahara, through the jungles and over the savannas of Africa and into Southern Asia. In his 30s, he sailed alone around the world in a 25-foot wooden boat. In his 40s, he wrote novels. And in his 50s, he bicycled the spine of the Rockies from Alaska to Mexico. He's worked on the Alaska Pipeline as an environmental lobbyist in the Alaska legislature and run a storied environmental organization fighting to protect Alaska's coastal rainforests. In 2010, wanting more frenzy in his life, he moved to New York City where he dug deep into leadership development and coaching. He now lives in a cabin on the coast of Maine, coaching business and nonprofit leaders intent on making big things happen in the world. He's the author of the books Broken Angels and Wren's Crossing, which came out just recently. Today, we're going to focus on building boats, sailing around the world, and his latest adventure into Finland. Russell, great to have you on the show again. Thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hey, hi to everyone and thanks, Steve, for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Well, it's great to have you back, and uh, um, I, I am too. And I, I, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to talk, get you to talk about is you've had some really cool adventures, and you're preparing for uh, another new adventure. And what I'd like to do is start with this. You sailed around the world in a 25-foot sailboat that didn't have any electronics. You also didn't know much about sailing at the time. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, before we go into this, what inspired you to pursue that journey? I'm not sure inspired is the right, right verb there, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, we'll run with it. So, so I was up on the, in the mountains with a buddy of mine once, hiking, uh, skiing in Alaska. So it was in the middle of the winter. We were in the middle of a cloud. We couldn't see anything. And my buddy had done two tours in Vietnam as a Marine, and, and we didn't know it then, but he had PTSD. Um, and he hadn't, he hadn't cut his hair since he'd mustered out of the Marines. So it was down to his waist. And he lived on a small sailboat down in the harbor at Juneau. It was 27 foot long. And I asked him just innocently, innocently, where are you going to go with it? Thinking, you know, you go to the next village or something. He said, I want to sail it into the South Pacific. And I said, you can do that? And he said, sure. And it was like God leaned out of the clouds and whacked me on the side of my head. I had no choice. I was going to do that. I had no sailing experience. I knew nothing, like nothing about boats. I, I had been on boats before, but, but, but the only skill or competency required of me was keeping out of the way. And, um, and that was it. I mean, that, that afternoon we got down off that mountain. I ran to the library and I found the sailing section. I'd, I'd never been in the sailing section of the library before. And <laughs> nice. Pulled <laughs> off a book on sailing. 
That's awesome. It, it, this is uh, just, uh, first of all, you ski in Alaska and then suddenly you start thinking about boats because uh, your friend li lives on a boat. And I, I love that. That's because uh, this ends up to be quite, a, quite an adventure. Yeah. So c can we talk a little bit about the boat that you're going to end up using? I mean, where did she come from and did she have a history of her own? Yeah, great question. The, so the class of boat she, she belonged to was called Virtue. It's V-E-R-T-U-E. And the Virtue was a class of boat that was designed by a British yacht designer in the 1930s, a man named Laurent Giles. And his commission was to build a boat that was robust enough to sail offshore and be single-handed, that is, have only one person on her. And the boat he designed ultimately was the Virtue, again, 25 foot long, about 4.3 4 feet deep of draft is an epic boat. She's beautiful. She's got gorgeous lines and she's really robust. Of course, she was built of wood back then, really robustly built. And a lot of people started sailing her offshore and, and understand there was a, you know, back then, particularly before the war, but really up until the 60s, the only people that sailed offshore went with on big boats and professional crews. And there was a, um, there was a rule of thumb that a skipper's lifetime is measured by the length of his boat. So a 25 foot boat, I would, I would have been dead before I set sail since I was <laughs> older than 25, but, nice. but <clears throat> yeah, small boat. And she was really one of the first small boats to go across oceans. That's awesome. And it, you know, it's um, all you have to do is hear you, you tell stories and show your pictures uh, from the trip that uh, you get a sense that uh, you kind of get connected to your, to your boat as a uh, as a, a buddy and uh, someone's going to take care of you. So uh, um, I love that. The, uh, you left from Alaska with a friend. Did he stay with you around the world uh, when you and uh, when you were by yourself? What was it like to let you know to be by yourself for lengths of this this trip? I, you know, I've heard you say that you really don't sail around the world by yourself. And can you explain that that comment as well? So, so I left Alaska with a, with a friend named Bob Frampton, who had a little bit more sailing experience than I did, but, but not much. And he got off the boat in Seattle. So that was just the first run from Juneau down to Seattle, which is only a thousand miles, but still took us 13 days because we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> and, then, and then your second question of, you know, what's it like being alone? Well, it really varies. At, at that time in my life, so I left when I was 30, I'd spent a lot of time alone you know, living in cabins, you know, in, in Alaska and, and, and whatnot. So I was pretty comfortable with that. The most difficult thing about sailing alone isn't, isn't um, like not being able to keep a 24 hour watch. So that's a problem, particularly in shipping lanes. The biggest problem is you don't have anybody who's gonna say, hey, you know, Russell, I, I really don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> so, <Nice. laughs> So you don't realize how many dumb ideas you have if you don't have somebody around saying, you know, Russell, I can give you that a little bit more thought. And, and that was probably the biggest, the biggest downside of going alone. You don't have someone to, to, to reality check you. Um, but I'll say there, there were times, you know, particularly in the Mediterranean, which is, you know, heavily trafficked body of water, you know, the, I didn't sleep for days. I mean, it was just really rough just staying up there watching for boats and, and, you know, freighter traffic, they're so big, they don't see you. Oh, I can ima imagine that. That'd be a little scary just to kind of wake up and go, oh, hey, I got a new next door neighbor. Let's, uh, let's get out of the way a, here. 
there was a time I was in a gale off the coast of Spain. And, you know, by then I'd been sailing four years. I was a pretty good sailor at that point. And it's a long story, but the essence of it is, is that I think, you know, the physics, a lot of the physics, I sailed through the middle of a, of, a, of a big cargo boat because when I saw her, I was looking out the back. It was, this was about 11 o'clock at night. So it was pitch black. It was March. It was cold. And I was only a couple miles off the coast of Spain. So I could see the lights of the, of the towns there. And then I look behind me, you know, at where Spain should be and see nothing but blackness. And I run to the hatch and look up and I could see this, the, this boat's riding lights way above me, you know, hundreds of feet above me. Wow. And I was only 50 feet from it. And I don't know how I got in front of that boat without being run down. I, I have no idea. Wow. That would be wild. It, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It's one of the things that you, you mentioned it, by being by yourself on the ship, not only not being able to sleep in comfort, I would think while you're a little worried about what you might wake up next to. Um, also, uh, did you ever have to worry about, uh, I mean, just people who, who might decide that your boat looks nice and they'd like to have it? Not many people wanted a 25-foot wooden boat. <laughs> you know, that's like riding into the, you know, the Bronx and the worst days of the Bronx with a rusted out VW bug. I mean, no one's going to steal it. Um, no, you know, by and large, I mean, without question, I mean, you know, people are generous, they're friendly, they're outgoing, they're curious. You know, I'd show up at some deserted island in the South Pacific and and you're the most exciting thing that's happened for months. And, and you know, they, they take you from hut to hut and feed you and things like that. So, so no. And, and then the sailing community itself is a tremendously generous community. I, you know, there's a high bar. You, you know, you asked me earlier that no one really sails alone around the world. And, and the point is that you need help. I mean, I needed help all the time. It's a complicated thing to move a boat from country to country and, and cross oceans with her. And, and, and there are always people who are willing to help. And that's what I meant by no one truly goes around the world by themselves because of all these people, people whose names you don't know, whose languages you can't speak, who are out there to help you. That's cool. Cause I know it, you know, you, when I've listened to you tell the uh, a majority of your story of the whole trip and it's it, it's you see that from place to place and time to time and one of my favorite parts of the story is just you beginning in the beginning when you go into mexico and you don't realize <laughs> that you you might have to have papers that allow you to uh even come into the dock someplace and uh about the i guess the officials there helped you figure out what you needed <laughs> Well, it, it still stuns me. I mean, now I'm, I'm in my advanced age that I was so clueless that I would leave, I'd sail away from the United States and sail into Mexico and never think that I might need some documents. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I get to this, and that I wasn't even aiming for this particular port, but there was a cyclone, Cyclone Agatha, the first one of the season that threw me off course. But anyway, I, yeah, I show up there and say, hey, here I am. And these guys said, <laughs> and of course, I don't speak any Spanish. And I needed all these papers, you know, from agricultural papers and, and customs papers and, and, and certain papers for the boat and ownership papers. I didn't have any of that stuff. And they all got it for me. They spent the whole morning running around town getting it for me because they knew I was clueless. You know, got to help this gringo out. <laughs> yeah, they were sweet. They were really good guys. That's, that's so awesome because I just, oh, yeah, okay, this, now I understand. And so, you know, lessons learned, <laughs> kind of interesting yeah. thing there. The, uh, you know, I got to ask this because you got the boat, you head out, and it, you know, how did you pack for a trip like this? I mean, I complain about trying to 
figure out what I'm going to wear if I'm going to Florida because you never know what the weather's going to change just in a couple of days. It could have been, you know, 80 degrees and then suddenly go down there and it's, it's in the 70s and <laughs> you brought the wrong clothing um, or the reverse of it. It's 100 down there. And, you know, how, how'd you pack for a trip like this? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is I didn't know what I was doing, so I just overpacked. I just threw everything in the boat. And I arrived home back to the United States with a lot less than I left with because I didn't, I realized a lot of the stuff I didn't need. But of course, you know, you're always stopping. If you don't have something, you can buy it. This is, I was there pre-internet. So it wasn't like I got Amazon airlift, <laughs> you know, uh, propeller shafts or something down to, down to some island. But, but by and large, you survive. The only real problem was that I was in Ecuador and there's not a lot of food in the Pacific Islands, right? You know, to import food is very expensive and, and the, the gardening is very, you know, the agriculture on the islands is very limited. So I packed a lot of food in Ecuador for the entire trip, you know, a year I was gonna take sailing across the Pacific. Unfortunately, all the food I got in Ecuador was, must have been organic because the bugs just ate it all. I mean, I was three weeks out at sea and, and they're just clouds of bugs all over the boat and all my plastic bags. I had to throw most of that stuff overboard. It was just terrible. Wow. And see, that's what, that's what I would think would be difficult about packing for a trip like this is just trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to get, what do I need in the beginning that I won't be able to get for a while? <laughs> and, uh, and then trying to figure that stuff out. So yeah, no, no Amazon uh, drone showing up to deliver a package and <laughs> middle of nowhere. <laughs> I like that thought. That's no, interesting. My my father, when he came to visit me in Tahiti, brought a head of cauliflower <laughs> to nice. smuggle it through customs, you know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the, uh, very cool. Uh, yeah, I got to ask this, too. I mean, this just is a note, uh, Russell. This is so cool. I mean, I just thinking about someone doing this and, you know, I, the pictures I've seen, um, you know, you, one of the things you talk about in your presentation is the amount of time you spend as you got better at sailing and so forth and kind of standing and watching on the horizon and looking as the boat's moving across the water. I, you know, let's talk. Uh, one, of, one of the things I'd like to do is, uh, um, did you want to quit in the beginning or at any time after? I mean, could you talk about, you know, one of the things I've heard you mention is that uh, you, you've talked about the types of fear that people have and that you're not really wired that way. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Well, your first question then about, did I think of quitting? Yeah, like on a minute by minute basis. <laughs> I mean, when I left Juno, it never occurred to me I might get seasick. And I'm, I'm 30 minutes into the, into the Gulf of Alaska and I'm puking over the rail. And I said, this is not fun. Um, and, and seriously, I was going to quit then. I just couldn't go back to Juno because I just had a big going away party. And <laughs> returning two days after my going away party would be a little bit too humiliating. But I thought I could make it down to Juno. And then after, after Bob left in Seattle and I, I kept on going down the coast, yeah, it was lonely, it was cold. It's really difficult being on a boat that's being tossed around. It's just a chip of wood on the, on the water. It's moving constantly and just requires a lot of energy from your body to, to, to counteract or to compensate for that. And then, and then there was a... Um, a time it was it was my most brutal passage it went from southern mexico to costa rica it's 500 miles it should have taken me four days it took me 19 and i just went through what's called the intertropical convergence zone where the 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 
the weather systems from the northern hemisphere meet the weather systems from the southern hemisphere and the only place the winds have to go is up and as they go up of course they release energy so it's like in a hurricane so the the thunder and lightning storms were, were constant i mean hour after hour the the the, the storm just blew and and by the time at the end of that that trip there's 19 days to go 500 miles i felt like i was a sailor and it was only then that i felt comfortable being on the boat and really excited about moving on that's i can it's so cool listening to you tell this and especially since i've seen some of the pictures and the images and you know and and knowing that you started off i mean I, i've heard you make jokes out of it but you're starting off with very limited understanding of what you're you're gotten yourself into and uh, then to be involved in those winds. I, I can't imagine what those, those seas were like. Like you said, it's like a chip of wood floating on, uh, being tossed around on the water. It's just wow. Um, and, and, and so what's, I mean, what are your thoughts there about, uh, you know, because part of the idea of wanting to turn around and, yeah, I can't imagine two days later you come up, hey, I'm back. <laughs> That's a long trip. That, yeah, that wouldn't work. Um, but uh, can you make a comment about that not being wired that way with the types of fear that sometimes that might come up in a trip like this? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You just look around and you can see what, what, what might be your holy terror is somebody else's piece of cake. You, you just understand that, that so many of our fears are individual to yourself and they're not truly objective fears. Now, somebody could say that sailing into the Gulf of Alaska and not having a clue how to sail might be an objective fear and I, I wouldn't disagree with them. But really most of the fears that constrain us in life are not objective fears. They're not authentic fears. You know, they're not fears where if something goes wrong, you end up in the emergency room. Usually what we're feared, afraid of is is feeling uncomfortable feelings, you know, the feeling of rejection, the feeling of failure, the feeling of humiliation. Those are just feelings. And, and one thing you know about feelings is they can be miserable, but they pass after a while. Yet nevertheless, they stop us in life. And, and when I look at my life, most of the times that I've been stopped have been not because somebody was pointing a pistol at me, but because I was scared to pick up the phone and call that hot chick and ask her for a, a you know, a drink, you know, it's, and it's, you know, uh, you know, I'm a coach now, so I deal with a lot of folks in really high positions who've, who, you know, we have to work through these fears that slow them up or stop them and really diminish our lives. That's, that's awesome thought right there, because that's, uh, I mean, because the trip that you take is, I mean, you, you talk about types of fears that people might have, like, uh, you know, heights and uh um, going through tunnels and, you know, there's any number of, of other people and you're getting ready to go into the, I mean, even though there's the known parts to it um, and you've got these charts and all that sort of stuff, eventually you're going to leave the side of land. And I cannot imagine what that feeling would be like when you know that you're the one in charge of that boat, <laughs> as opposed to being, I mean, I've been on deep sea fishing you know, excursions and eventually you don't see land anymore, but I'm hoping that the guy who's driving the boat that I'm paying is, uh, <laughs> understands how to get me back to the land. Mm. I just, I, I just can't imagine what that feeling was like when, as you then set off. So, you know, when, when, so Bob and I left Alaska, we left in the afternoon and we launched ourselves. We didn't know we came around an Island and into the Gulf of Alaska and it's a full gale blowing. 
So the boat's all knocked around. We didn't know what to do. And I'm puking over the rail. It's just miserable. And then, then it gets dark and it's really cold. It's August, but it's, you know, it's Alaska. And we're freezing on the back deck, trying no idea what our position is. And the next morning, it was really interesting. The next morning dawned with a blue sky, but we were sitting in this cloud of fog. We couldn't see more than 50 or 60 feet horizontally, but vertically, you look straight up and you see the blue sky. And the, the waves had died down, so it was really quiet. And if you look to the north, powering above the fog was Mount St. Elias. It's the highest coastal mountain in the world. It comes right out of the ocean. It's like 14, 15,000 feet high. And that's all we could see. And then around 11 o'clock in the morning, this little northwesterly breeze comes down and plucks at her sails and she starts sailing. As we started sailing out into the Gulf to the southwest, Mount St. Elias just kind of shrank. It just reeled back into the fog. And that was my last sight of lion for quite a while. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> that's wild. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about using a sailboat. I mean, especially by yourself. What do you have to get good at? Well... Not puking. That's that's for one. <laughs> yeah, that would be important. <laughs> well, you have to get good at everything. The you know that's that's a really good question. I, I suppose what you what you have to get good at is judgment. And he, let me tell you a story. So I was off the coast of California and I got hit by another gale. And I don't know, it's like September now or so. And and it was a following sea. So the boat was just racing, and all I had up was a little storm jib. All her other sails were 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 handed, were reefed in. And the boat was just screaming along with these big waves. And every once in a while, the wave would just crash on the stern of the boat, you know, on the deck and just completely submerge the boat. So the only thing that was sticking out of the water was me and the mast. And I'm sitting here thinking I'd read all these books about heavy weather sailing. You know, what do you do when you get heavy weather sailing? And there are all these strategies. And I knew all the strategies, but I didn't know, I didn't have the experience to know when to de deploy them. Was the boat doing okay? We're, we're, we're now doing just running under a storm jib. Or should I be hove to? Or should I be hove to to a sea anchor? Or should I be streaming warps? Or should I be kissing my ass goodbye? I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do because I didn't have the experience. And since I'm fundamentally a lazy guy, I didn't do anything and the boat survived. You know? but, but I think that would be the answer to your question is that you can have all this book knowledge. But if you're not there on the street, you're not out there really really with the experience of what it, what it really means. You don't know how to apply that book knowledge. That's such an awesome thought because it, you, you have to have a lot of knowledge to pull from, I would think. And, you know, and then experience is going to teach you, shouldn't have done that one. And I love what you said earlier, which is you didn't have anybody to say, Russell, that's not a good idea. Right. <laughs> so all that kind of combined together is, is just fascinating because it's a, like you know, like you said, if you do make a bad mistake, you could end up uh, dead. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, very cool. I, I, you know, to say the least, knowing navigation techniques would be a requirement. I would, I would think. You know, what tools did you use? I mean, and could you talk a little bit about the issues you had in navigating? Because I, I, one of the things I've seen when you've presented is, you know, that whole thing when after you leave the coastline and then you head out. And you're going to Picarn? Picarn, Picarn, Picarn? Yeah. yeah. So, so two things. One is, yeah, I didn't know how to navigate, and I didn't want to use a GPS. The um, I wanted to do sextant, and and I thought I'd learn how to use a sextant on my way down to Seattle, right? And because I had too many other things to do in Juneau, and 
And there are, there are two problems with learning how to navigate on my way to Seattle. One is that I was seasick, so I couldn't read any of the manuals. And, and two is you had no way to check your sights. You know, you take your sights and the X you put on the ocean could be anywhere in the North Pacific. There's, there's no way to confirm it. But you know, you're, you're sailing south along the North American continent, you, maybe a couple hundred miles offshore, but you know, if you turn left, you're going to run into it eventually. So that wasn't much of a problem. But, you know, a year, almost two years later, when I'm sailing to Pitcairn, and Pitcairn's the island where the mutineers on the bounty hold up after they, after they set Captain Bly adrift on his, in his longboat. And it's south of the Tropic of Capricorn. And I left from the Galapagos. And it was, you know, 2,700 nautical miles, about 3,300 statute miles, which is as far as San Diego to Lubeck, Maine, complete diagonal across the country. And I still hadn't figured out this sextant thing that I'd read all the books. I think I was doing all the calculations and reductions correctly, but, it, but all the way down the coast, I kept missing my ports. But again, on the continent, you're eventually going to find something. But Pitcairn's only a mile in diameter. It'd be really easy to miss. And the next stop is Antarctica. So, nice. so <laughs> I'm sailing all the way. I'm sailing there, right? 3,300 miles from Lubeck, Maine to San Diego, right? And I'm not certain that where I think I am is where I actually am. And then it, was, it gets worse. I don't know how complicated you want me to get here, Steve. But what's, what's worse is is when you go underneath the sun. So I started out with the sun south of me and I ended up with the sun north of me. And when you're underneath the sun, you can't use it to navigate. Oh, wow. For, for a lot of complicated reasons. So you have to start using the stars. And the stars are like these little insects that are buzzing around in your scope and on a boat that's being tossed around like a chip of wood. And they all look the same. So you're not even sure you're getting the right star. So, so it's really difficult. But the... the, the but I was thinking about it, right? One day I was just lying down in my bunk, thinking about it. And I remembered the sentence that I'd read, who knows, 10, 20 times in the, in the manual. This, I was using the Coast Guard manual for navigation that said that Coast Guard cadets who've made 2000 sites with a sextant are considerably less accurate than those cadets who've made 3000 sites with their sextant. And at that point, I probably hadn't made 500, maybe only two or 300 sites. And I realized that it wasn't my calculations that was wrong. It was that I wasn't using my tool with, with great enough precision. And as soon as that thought came into my head, then I really focused on using that sextant, you know, like a surgeon with a scalpel. I was just super precise in how I used that sextant. And I raised Pitcairn, it was dead on. That's awesome. It, it, the realization that you were right has, has to have been a cool feeling, <laughs> especially knowing the consequences. <laughs> yeah, I, a little hyperventilating when, when I saw Pick Care on that day. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just can't imagine. It, it's just uh, so cool because, you know, just the thought that, uh, like I said, if, if you're not accurate enough, you, you know, a small island of a mile, <laughs> that could be long gone. Um, and just the interesting aspect of being going under the sun too that's uh, shifting where it's going to be located mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of information a lot of stuff you were learning along the path i can imagine the uh, you know one of the things i heard you talk about is something called and i i've heard it before i just wonder if you could talk about it in terms of navigation which is dead reckoning what what is that 
So, so dead reckoning is just the, the procedure where you're determining your position by the number of miles you've traveled, by the currents, if you know them, and the, and, and the compass bearing. So it's without taking a formal position from the stars or from a GPS, if you had a GPS. So if you're going southwest and, you're, and your, your speed is three knots and you've gone for three hours, you've probably gone 10 miles in, in this direction. And so it's an estimate. You can never be precise, but it's an estimate. And that's the best you can do when you don't have any electronics. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's wild. Uh, I, uh, you know, and just as a side note, I'm a former, former army officer and I've been lost in the woods using a compass, <laughs> doing mm-hmm. you know, lost in the middle of the night and all kinds of stuff like that. At least though I'm on land <laughs> and you know, it's like, uh, that's, that's cool. Understanding the, the strat, the techniques and the skills you have to get good at in the middle of, uh, in case the things that you need to use kind of don't work as well. You can't see anything. I, thanks for talking about that. I, uh, let's talk about, you know, what part of your trip is your favorite to think back about? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. You know, the, the trip really varies. So it took place over four years and all the good stories happened in the first year because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and then after you get to knowing what you're doing, you don't have as many stories anymore. Um, but you know, maybe it was the Atlantic crossing. So that was my last crossing. And I left from Madeira, which is a Portuguese island off the west coast of Africa. And you have to do this big U around the North Atlantic. And I was headed to Bar Harbor, Maine. Right? It was 4,700 miles. That'd be my longest passage. And I was doing it just at the beginning of the hurricane season. So there weren't many boats out there. Most of the boats make that passage in the winter, you know, after the hurricane season. And there were a couple of things that were interesting about that passage. One is that it was pretty gentle, right? Usually when you're in the trade winds, they blow and the waves are big. And though they're not breaking waves and they're not threatening in any way, um, you know, it's just rough on you to be tossed around like that. But here the, the winds are a little more gentle. The waves are a lot smaller. And in fact, I had 15 days of no wind at all. I just sat there. And it was beautiful. It's just glorious, you know, blue sky every day, clouds, seagulls, you know, Portuguese men of war and floating in the ocean. And, and I had bought a, um, a book of poetry, an introduction to poetry. When I was in Italy, there's this great English language bookstore in Rome. And, and it was a second or third hand copy. There were somebody's notes all through it. And this was, this was, you know, this was in a fit of self-improvement. I thought I'd learn how to read poetry. I, I was a computer programmer and programs made sense, but poetry made no sense at all. And I studied that book and, 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 I, and after a while, the poem started making sense. And, you know, they're really emotive little starbursts. You read one of these things and, and you get the emotional underpinnings and it just speaks to where you are. And all of a sudden there are tears coming out of your eyes and you go, oh my God, life is so good. So it was a beautiful kind of transformative passage. And of course I was coming home after four years, you know? And so, so I think that was probably my favorite passage. That's awesome. That's uh, very cool. Cause that, that is another big part of your trip that once you know, a lot, I guess your skill level by the time you're on that part of the journey is a lot different than crossing on the Pacific side. So <laughs> amazing, but a four year journey, um, just in- incredible. I, what do you think is one of the lessons that you learned from your journey that'll always be with you? 
Well, I think the key lesson is, you know, again, I'm a coach. So a lot of this, I relate to, to the, you know, the work I do with folks, but in, in American culture right now, there's a sense of we need to be happy. And happiness is a feeling you have in the moment. But I would suggest that you really want to be content or joyful. And I've, you know, a, a, a trip like this, which had tremendously difficult moments, you know, emotionally, alone at sea, you know, in, in storms, you know, not sure where you're going to survive, being far from home, you're not happy in those moments. And it'd be really easy to pull the plug, you know, and sink the boat and jump on a 747 and you're back home in 14 hours and, you know, that's the end of it. But if you persevere, you know, if you push through, if you accept the pain and the discomfort for a larger goal, then at the end of it, you have, you have these thoughts and memories. You've, you have an accomplishment, you know, you've reached the mountaintop. And that's what makes life fulfilling is having those kind of, I don't call them adventures, but those kind of quests. And it could be a emotional quest, a spiritual quest, you know, physical quest like sailing. And you put up with a lot of pain and difficulty and challenge. And then you get to the top and it changes your life. So, so my suggestion would be is, is really, you got to know yourself to know that you're on the right quest, of course. But don't try and be happy. <laughs> try to be challenged. Try to let the juices flow. Happiness will come, but don't worry about it in the moment. That, that's awesome. I, you know, I think about uh, um, these the images that I've seen that you've shared, and and uh, one of them that you talked about is the time that you spent, and you're you're standing, you know, this giant head of hair and uh you're standing there leaning against this this board type railing type thing and you and you talked about that part in your presentation about the amount of time that you sent there just looking and thinking and uh and i and i love what you just said because i can imagine that just the you've overcome some of these challenges and now what challenges are ahead and uh, instead of you know, and that thought just sounds true because too often we think about the idea of happiness versus i can you know, there's not necessarily happiness associated with I can do this, except the celebratory type feeling you might have when you accomplish it. <laughs> um, great thoughts. Uh, awesome stuff. Did, did you want to say anything about that, by the way, when you're kind of thinking and looking out the ocean, that part I was talking about? Oh, well, yeah, I spent a lot of time daydreaming. You know, after a while, <laughs> daydreams get really boring because it's the same damn theme, you know. <laughs> Russell, <clears throat> king of the universe, Russell sexy, sexy, you know, dude that all the women are falling over. After a while, you get tired of those. And I didn't know anything about brain training or anything about meditation, any of that stuff. And it would have been interesting to have had some of that training. Because I think, you know, the only way I'm going to really get good meditation is if I cre create some, if I commit some heinous felony and I'm locked away in solitary for the rest of my life, I get really good as a meditator. But I had that opportunity on the boat and I just didn't know about it. So, you know, I, 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 look, I look at folks like, say, Plato, right? So he writes some of the defining literature in the Western canon. And I, I think, how the hell did he do that? Because anytime I go for a walk, I'm just daydreaming. How was he thinking about, you know, the platonic ideal? 
I mean, give me a break, you know. <laughs> I don't know how those guys do it, but but there was some wasted time on that boat. I'll put it that way. <laughs> gotcha. I like that. Um, you know, well, let's talk about, you have a new, and I, I called it an adventure before, but now I should be calling it a new quest. Um, you have a, a new quest. You're building a boat and making plans for a trip. Uh, could you talk about what that trip will, uh, what's going to happen on that trip and, and tell us a little bit about how the boat's coming along? So, so the, the, the trip would be to build a boat. It's going to be a 75-foot wherry. And wherry was, was initially designed in the 1500s or 1600s in, in England to transport people across rivers, mostly the Thames in, in London. It's a flat bottom boat, but it's beautiful, beautiful design. And put a sliding seat in her, you know, like in rowing skulls, and row her around Newfoundland. And um, that's the plan. And, and I've had this plan for like 20 years. And, and really, there's, there's the romance of it. I've always wanted to build a boat. It'll be a real challenge for me because I'm not very meticulous. I'm not in, in a boat, a boat unlike say building a box or a chair, you know, the boat's gotta be pretty, pretty symmetrical on both sides. If it's a quarter inch <laughs> too big on one side, then it's not gonna go straight. So, so it's gonna be a real challenge for me to, to be as meticulous as you need to be building the boat. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then, and then to row around Newfoundland. Newfoundland, if you've never been there, it's this extraordinarily beautiful place. And it's got this deep, jagged, sunken coastline. I'm just really looking forward to exploring it. And the three, of course, it's, it's a desperate, desperate attempt to counteract 40 years of sitting in chairs <laughs> because rowing is going to really strengthen my back. And so maybe I can get into my 80s and 90s without being crippled by, by too, many, too many years in front of a damn computer. I, I love that. The, uh, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, and I've never been there, but I do understand that the, it's not exactly uh, – um, that you can run into some pretty serious weather and storms and little coolness <laughs> out there. Yeah, you, you just look at it. You know, you've got three different weather systems all converging in Newfoundland. You've got the Gulf Stream and, and the warm waters from the south. It's coming up the, uh, the coast of North America. Then you've got the fresh brackish water and warm water coming out of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is coming from the Great Lakes. And then you've got the cold Arctic water, water coming down from Labrador, and Baffin Island, and it all meets in, in Newfoundland. And um, yeah, it's it's got some weather there in Newfoundland. It's, it's not Tahiti. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's what I was thinking about. It's like a little different than those warm areas that you went to. The uh, uh, So I want to make sure I heard you right. It's 75 foot boat? Oh, 17, one seven. Oh, one seven. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, wow, that's a huge boat to row. Um, so so it's smaller than the, the sailboat that you took. And uh very cool. So, but you, I didn't realize that you'd be rowing. That's interesting. So it doesn't, it, it won't have sails or anything like that. It's, it's a. No, it's designed to have a rig and a centerboard on her, but I'm not putting that on because otherwise I'll get lazy and start sailing. The purpose is to row and, 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 and recover my back. Gotcha. So when, when, were you, when, when do you, when do you think you're going to be finished with the boat and ready to start your journey? Am I making a commitment here, Steve? Uh, no, no, I'm not going to hold you to it. Uh, actually, well, where I'm going with that is that you got to let me know when when you uh, when this happens. We got to have you talk about how the journey went and all that. No, I'd love to. So 2023, I figure it'll take me two years. I'm not working full time on the boat because I've got other things going on, but I'm figuring it'll take me two years to build the boat, outfit her, do a test run, and then head up the the May of of 2023. 
it could be 2024. Gotcha. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, no one here holding into that, so <laughs> we're good. <laughs> um, very cool. Uh, you know, we're getting we're getting close to uh, um, wrapping up, and and Russell, one of the things I'd like you to do is uh, not only are you an adventurer, you know, quest seeker, you've got uh, you're also an author, and uh, um, you have a thriller that uh, um, was recently released called Rin's Crossing. You want to tell everybody a little bit about that? Well, I do, but I'd also like to point point to what was it, episode 317 of of Steve, because you did a great podcast with me just on that book a while ago. Thanks. I'll so, share that link too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, please do. So, so Ridge Crossing is a thriller and it's a mystery, but really it's a, it's a story about four individuals who have different visions of what Alaska should be like, right? They've got their platonic ideal of what Alaska should be like. And they all see themselves as good, moral, upstanding people. But in service of their vision, to fight for the vision, they all step over the line. They all make moral, ethical, and legal compromises that um, they wouldn't have made in their normal lives. And three of those four people were friends, and they betray each other because each have a different vision of Alaska. And so it's a complex novel, four or five major plots all interwoven together as these four individuals, right, fight for what they think is right. And it's, it's fast. I had a friend who says, of course, they always say this, I never read thrillers. You know, it's beneath me to read a thriller. <laughs> she picked it up at two and she said, I finished it at 1 a.m. and ruined my next day at work. Um, yeah, so it's, it's fast, but it's also a thinking person's book. You really, really get to, to chew on, you know, what does it mean to, to fight for what you believe is right? And it's cool too. I've read it and it's uh, got uh, great characters that uh, some of you, you change your mind about from the beginning and uh, later on, it's really cool. So good stuff. Um, and so do you have another, are you working on another one? Well, I think I'm, re I, I haven't started yet, but my next, next book will actually be a, a, a nonfiction about sailing around the world. Nice. Very nice. So you've referenced your coaching, uh, Russell Heath coaching. Uh, uh, Want to give a, a plug out there for uh what they'd find if they go looking for you there? Yeah, so, so I became a coach by happenstance, really. I, I, um, I was a executive director of a couple of advocacy organizations in Alaska, and I realized that, that I could only take the organization as far as I was personally developed. So it wasn't lack of funding. It wasn't the bad guys. It wasn't, it, it wasn't circumstances. What was our limiting factor was who I was as a leader, and most leadership training is about skills, but it wasn't skills that I needed. It was behaviors that I needed, right? Somebody can tell you how to do the best public speaking, public speech, but if you're, if you're wimpy and mousy on the stage, the speech is the best written speech isn't going to go well. So it's how do you be, in that case, how do you be confident and self-assured on the stage? Um, and so I left Alaska and went to New York City to, to get in to be coached by leadership coaches. And boy, they rung me out. It was, just, it was far more difficult going through these programs than it was sailing around the world. There was no comparison. And I, uh, I was also there just after the, the crash and couldn't find a job. And after several years of looking, I said, all right, I'm going into business myself. And you know, either I was gonna run, run gems into Burma or something, but, but uh, Somebody suggested I become a counselor and I puked at that and I thought, oh, but I can become a coach. So that's what I became, a coach. And 
it's been tremendously rewarding personally in the sense of, you know, making a difference for people because the coaching is super effective. It's just stunning how effective it is in, in making behavioral change and opening up people's lives. And two, you know, my clients are always, they're such demanding people. They make me change as well. So I have to keep up with them. It's really great. And, you know, if you've got leaders out there who, are, who really want to do something for their communities or their schools or, or um, you know, in their businesses, you know, give me a ring. We can talk. Excellent. Excellent. Russell, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Where's the best place to start? Well, if you Google Russell Heath coaching or Russell Heath Rins crossing, I pop right up, but I have two websites out there. So one is russellheath.net, N-E-T. And then I have my, my author's website, russellheathauthor, all one word, dot com. And both of those just jump right on them and you can get in touch with me. I've got my phone number there, my email and, you know, shoot me a note. Awesome. And I'll make sure those are in my show note links so that uh, people can find them. Uh, Russell, thank you so much for talking with me today. You know, what an amazing life you're leading. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your experiences as well as your new upcoming journey uh, or quest, excuse me. And um, have fun on your new adventures. And I hope that I can talk to you and coming back on the show, like I said earlier, once uh, we achieve that. So, you know, uh, um, that, I think that'd be cool to hear how, how it went. Uh, wishing the best in all that you do. Hey, thanks, Steve. I'm honored that you had me on twice in a row. Appreciate it. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.